0: Hello, and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology, and with the living world. Join me, Natalina High, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption, and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahide.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahide.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this final episode of the season, I speak with Paddy La For the past eight years, Paddy has been focusing on understanding how we can redesign our societal systems to avert the unfolding environmental catastrophe and improve our quality of life. He is now beginning to publish what he's learned, starting with the book, Building Tomorrow, Averting Environmental Crisis with a New Economic System, which was published in March 2023. Throughout the next 12 months, he'll be following this book with a series of essays on various aspects of positive societal transformation which you'll be able to find over at his substack. Before this chapter, Paddy had a somewhat different life. He first earned a degree in mathematics at Cambridge University and qualified as an accountant at KPMG in London. Then he spent years living something of a double life. He worked as a finance specialist in London for six months at a time, but used his money to live in remote places alongside people whose lives were drastically different from his own. He's travelled with economic migrants been taught to fish by rural Mozambicans, and lived with Hadza hunter-gatherers. He spent two months living with an indigenous tribe in the Amazon rainforest, then won a Royal Geographical Society Award to spend an entire year being taught by traditional wisdom-keepers from another jungle culture. In 2015, Paddy paused his travels to concentrate on how we can improve our own society, and in doing so, improve the lives of the billions of people currently affected by the dominant global systems. So Paddy, it's lovely to be joining you in conversation today. How are you and where are you?
1: I'm very well. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. I really enjoy your podcast, so it's great to be on it. (laughs) Um, I'm actually in British Columbia. I moved about a month ago to a cooperative on the coast of British Columbia, which is beautiful.
0: Gorgeous. That sounds really lovely. Right. Well, from your vantage point in the cooperative in British Columbia, I'd love to ask you, what you think is going on in the global human psyche right now?
1: Yes, that's a great question to start your podcast with. Uh, So my answer is that I think that the collective human psyche is um, reacting to and processing, but hasn't fully processed yet, um, the fact that we are now entering a new stage of development for humanity, uh, which is to say we are becoming a planetary-scale species Uh, So to give a few examples of that, uh, we now have a truly globalised economic system. Virtually everyone in the world relies on or uses the global system uh, to some extent. Uh, And I can give an example of that. So I spent a couple of years in the Amazon with indigenous people there, and they essentially rely on um, machetes and axes that come from China. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and there's loads of other similar examples. (laughs) And then another side of the being a planetary species, planetary scale species, is uh, that we're having planetary scale effects such as climate change, plastic pollution has been, you know, microplastics have been found on the top of Everest and in the depths of the Antarctic Ocean and those kind of things. And then there are other aspects such as we have massively increased power, so nuclear weapons are obviously potentially could destroy the planet kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's air travel that allows wealthy people to travel around the whole world, essentially immediately. And then there's a spread of smartphones as well. So the way technology spreads, because um, smartphones were first, uh, more or less first available in the early 2000s. And by 2014, already a billion were being sold every year. Um, And then there's, you know, the internet and so forth. And I I think a kind of symbolic side of this is uh, the image of Earth from space, like the Earthrise photo that was from the 60s. And I feel like the kind of conceptual equivalent of this is sinking into the collective psyche. But as I say, I don't think we've kind of processed it yet properly. And we don't have a coherent understanding of what it means and how we should move forward now that we're in this new stage.
0: Mm. And I think also there's something around the scale itself that is so tricky, at least for me, to get one's head around it. You know, no matter how many podcasts you listen to, books you read, um, how many research papers you kind of get stuck into... The complexity and the scale are so vast that it's really quite tricky to start to understand our place within it.
1: Yeah. And I I think one of the ways in which people are kind of reacting to it is the issue of the systems we're in and the world is so massive and so complicated that it makes people feel helpless and kind of become a bit fatalistic about things. Yeah. Uh, and not realise that we also once we understand how we can use it, we we can use the power we have to make things much better. Mm. But it's very hard to see how to do that. Another aspect of this is that the systems that we've got at the moment have been very useful from a lot of for most people have been very useful in the process. I, I think this process of becoming a planetary scale species has been going since about the 1950s, which is when, um, since then, there's been something called the Great Acceleration, which is a massive increase in population, energy use, GDP, and then also environmental impacts such as carbon emissions, deforestation, plastic pollution, and so on. And the systems, the societal systems we've got, we still have, have been very useful for the Great Acceleration and have massively improved quality of life for an enormous number of people. Mm. So, this also makes it much harder for people to recognize that we now, now we've accelerated, <laughs> um, we've gone through that period, and we need to find new systems that are suited to being planetary scale and continuing for an, inde- an indefinite amount of time. Mm.
0: Yeah, that definitely f- feels to me as though there's kind of like this it's like the juddering in the car, and you think, and you're kind of sitting there thinking, please don't be something serious, please don't be something serious, and then more things start going wrong. And I feel like the the juddering is getting louder and louder and more people are kind of going, oh, shit, maybe there's actually something wrong. In one of our previous conversations, you mentioned that in the West, at least, and obviously we're a global species, so now it's going throughout the the world, that we're running on 20th century systems that aren't appropriate for our current moment and worsening polycrisis. And so I'm curious to ask about your current thinking and focus on... How we might explore new alternative systems and perhaps broader timescales—you know, looking to the next hundred years, for instance—will our capitalist system still be working? What do you suspect might might unfold?
1: Yeah, I certainly hope that our, the capitalist system basically doesn't exist in a hundred years' time. Uh, we've transformed it into a better system, and that's the most clear reason for that is the environmental crisis. The current systems are—you know, there's been at least 30 years when people have been aware that there are serious environmental crises and trying to solve them. And within the current system, it's been essentially impossible to do so. Mm. But on top of that, even on its own terms, the current system isn't suitable when you look at it on the scale of one or 200 years. Um, And I'll just use a couple of statistics to explain what I mean. So the current system looks on economic growth as more or less the be all and end all the mm-hmm. the most important thing and the standard aim is to have three percent growth a year and that's actually one of the UN sustainable development goals but it's also not just a global goal each individual country generally aims for something around that but three percent doesn't sound like very much but it actually because of the kind of compound interest style increase it does add up a lot over time so it actually means that GDP needs to double every 23 years. Like if you have 3% growth a year, it doubles in 23 years.
0: That's astounding.
1: Yeah. And so then calling that 25 years, that means that over 100 years, it needs to grow by 16 times because it doubles in 23. And then that doubles the next 23. So that's four times after 50 years. 16 times after 100 years. And then after 200 years, 256 times. So the current aim is if it's looked on as a system that carries on for 200 years, is for the global economy and the economy of individual countries to be 250 times as big as they are now in 200 years' time.
0: Which is just impossible. Which
1: is, yeah, it just boggles the mind, doesn't it? But on the (laughs) other hand, the other statistic is on the poverty side of things, right? So normally when people are talking about global poverty, they talk about extreme poverty, which is, uh, I think it's $2.10 now, it's about $2 a, a day, per person which is an extremely low bar that's like barely surviving kind of levels you want to get people way above that right and jason Hickel did a study a few years ago looking at it from the perspective of a basic standard of living which he set at seven dollars forty per day and then he looked at the average rates of um increasing wealth for the poorest people between 1980 and 20 or 1981 and 2015 And he worked out that at those rates, it would take 200 years to get everyone up to $7.40 a day. So on the current system, which looks at things in those kind of terms very specifically, the aim at the moment, essentially, is for 200 years time, America and Europe and so forth, to have um, economies that are 250 times the size they are now, and yet... Only just be reaching a stage where everyone in the world has more than today's the equivalent of today's seven dollars forty a day, Mm -hmm. uh, which is obscene, basically. Yeah. Um, And then on top of that, there's the environmental crisis, which the current systems are manifestly failing to solve. So looking at it on that kind of timescale opens our minds to the fact that we absolutely have to find new systems. And so then the next question is, well, what kind of systems, what kind of world can we aim for as a planetary-scale species looking at it as continuing indefinitely into the future? And so I think looking on those larger timescales, rather than thinking about specific systems, we should think about more general kind of aims So, and things around that. But my idea at the moment is about the general aim – And so I think we should aim for a general goal of bounded abundance. Mm.
0: Um,
1: So there's two sides of that. There's the bounds and then the abundance. So on the bounds side, there are um, ecological bounds. And there are a set of planetary boundaries that have been worked out by uh, Johan Rockström and his team at the Stockholm Resilience Centre. So these are boundaries like uh, climate change, biodiversity loss nutrient cycles you know we need to make sure we don't mess up nutrient cycles and those kind of things and uh there are also bounds in terms of resources so at the moment we use enormous amounts of well fossil fuels but also metals um, and just loads of different resources so clearly eventually those kind of things are going to run out and some Mm -hmm. sooner than others and i know one person who's working on this is uh dr simon michaud um i think there i'm sure there are others as well but that's another important bound, essentially. And and then another bound is actually a social foundation. So we need everyone to have enough of the basics of food, uh, water, education, social networks, and so forth. And there's the donut, um, which was invented by Kate Raworth, which combines two of these, the ecological boundaries and the social foundation. And I might go into the donut later because that's in my book. So, yeah, so those are the bounds. And then the other side is abundance. And generally speaking, nowadays, at least in the West, people think of abundance... Abundance is kind of like wealth, right? And mm. people think of this in terms of material goods, mostly, <laughs> right? Material quality of life. Then you think about the bounds, and you're like, oh, but in order to not go over the, those bounds, we need to have... We use less materials and therefore have less of a material quality of life. And I don't think this is necessarily true. There are ways, such as the circular economy which again is in my book and I can go into later, that can allow us to have a decent material quality of life and for poor people, global poor people, to have a much better quality of life than they have now without going over those bounds. But I think more importantly in this kind of looking at things in 100 years time type scale is that we should have a broader conception of what abundance means and a recognition that abundance means different things to different people. So, for example, people might want an abundance of time or an abundance of social connections, an abundance of connection to nature, of creative expression, of learning and sharing knowledge and skills, an abundance of adventure and an abundance of joyful celebration and cultural expression. And ultimately, I think what we're saying, or I'm saying, is that we should be aiming for an abundance of human flourishing.
0: Mm. I love that. I love that. It's just making me smile thinking about those things. And it's interesting, isn't it? I was listening to um a podcast that Della Duncan hosts called Upstream and she was talking about this this idea of sufficiency and abundance. So it's interesting hearing you talk about abundance because I think in modern day western cultures abundance is tethered to financial wealth as you mentioned. And the flip side of that is a sense of scarcity. So if I want to be abundant, I need to be able to have more funds to buy food, get a bigger house, live in a nicer place, whatever it might be. And there's something really interesting when you flip it on its head, which is, well, what does sufficiency look like? You know, if you're thinking about it through the lens of human flourishing, and I've been having conversations like this with my partner and with other friends, which is, you know, if someone paid you a lot of money and you ended up having to be a visible public figure in order to get paid, like a footballer or, I don't know, public intellectual or whatever it is, would your life be better or worse? Like when you woke up in the morning and you went to meet with friends or go do the things that you most enjoy doing, so for me it might be dancing or it might be eating out, would my life feel qualitatively more joyful or less? And actually I have to say in many instances it would be less because you're tethered to all these other things, you get recognised more, maybe you've got a bigger mortgage maybe you're tied into a style of life that requires that you make more money so that you can keep payments up. There are all these hidden costs that we don't necessarily think about when we orient ourselves towards financial growth. Whereas if we orient ourselves towards a different set of values around abundance, maybe we make slightly different decisions, or at least it comes from a a slightly different place, even though it still connects to money. So I'm curious what you think are some of the possible ways in which to look at the relationship between abundance and financial wealth, and where we might start to reimagine finance and economics.
1: Yeah, so I completely agree that at the moment in the current system, money and financial uh, wealth basically is an essential aspect of having abundance of many other things. But you can aim Mm -hmm. for different things. I mean, I personally did. I uh, became an accountant and then used that to earn money in short periods and then spend the money in longer periods uh, in remote cultures and what have Mm -hmm. you. So I was essentially buying time. But that is definitely going against the grain of the current system. And I don't really know if those... I mean, obviously, quite a lot of people do similar kind of things. And if the whole kind of majority of society started doing that in terms of people... I honestly don't really know what would happen. It would be quite complicated, right? Because (laughs) the current system is so set up in that Mm. kind of a way. But in terms of moving to another system on the financial side of things, so I think something that really holds people into the needing more money kind of aspect is the fact that a lot of things are tied up by the way in which monetary and financial system the banking system mainly pulls us into more money a clear example of this is mortgages right so (laughs) a very serious tie on most people is the fact that they have a mortgage and obviously we're talking about in the west here have a mortgage that is absolutely enormous and they have to pay you know a large proportion of their income for the next 30 years into that mortgage and therefore they need to um uh, they need to keep earning for all of that period. And so moving from the current scale of mortgages down to a smaller scale is quite a complicated kind of process. But one of the key aspects of this that I know reasonably about because um, it's one of the technologies in my book is changing the way the banking system runs through changing how money can be created Because at the moment, money is actually created by private banks uh, when they create debt. And that's how the Bank of England describes it. The Bank of England says that 97% of money in the UK is created by private banks as debt. So essentially, when a bank makes a debt, they don't give you money that they have. They kind of like give you the ability to spend money, Mm -hmm. but they don't have less money. They just have a debt on their balance sheet right and then part of the agreement is that then you have to repay them that money and when you repay them they cancel the debt off their balance sheet and they can't use the money either so as the bank of england puts it when you repay debts this destroys the money so it's kind of temporary money but on top of this banks don't just lend you an amount of money and get it back they ask for interest back as well right and that's profit for them so they make money out of doing more debts so long as people actually repay the money and the interest. And this means that they're incentivized, and they're very definitely self-interested insofar as wanting more money. Um, so they are incentivized to make more loans that are safer loans and have a decent rate of interest to maximise the amount of money they make back in interest. And one of the ways in which they can do this is by doing more mortgages so they can you know because mortgages are absolutely massive so the amount of money they can get back from the interest is relatively large and people really don't want to default on their mortgages so they're pretty safe (laughs) Um, so this is a fundamental driver of house price increase right because banks are always trying to get people to have bigger mortgages basically so then taking that out and what the sovereign money system which is one of the uh, technologies that I talk about in my book actually changes how money is created. And so so sovereign money systems are, in general, a kind of system that, well it's developed, they've been enabled lot, a lot more by recent technology, but they've developed from full reserve banking, which was uh, has been around for a couple of centuries kind of thing. But the specific sovereign money system that I focus on in my book was one that was developed by Andrew Jackson and Ben Dyson at Positive Money in about 2012 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And also sovereign money systems have... uh, So they're um, advocated for by Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times, and uh, Iceland and Switzerland have both looked very seriously into instituting them. Um, And what they do is they change how money can be created. So they take the power to create money away from private banks completely, and instead the central bank and the government between them do, essentially. So the central bank decides how much money should be in the economy, which is already something central banks do, and that's why they change interest rates. They essentially want to to influence how much money is in the economy, and they do this at the moment through changing the interest rate and quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. But changing the interest rate um, just changes the calculus of profitability by which private banks choose how to make loans because of the reserve system. is all quite complicated, but basically that's, that's, that's what it can do. And quantitative easing, they put money into the financial system, hoping it will then trickle down through. So they have weak tools, essentially. And the sovereign money system changes this. So it says private banks can't make money. The central bank can decide how much money is in the economy directly by making more money or destroying money in order to get to the level it wants to have. And then some of that it can lend to banks to then lend into the economy, but most of the main way kind of thing is to give it to the government who can then spend it into the economy. And this also gives the government a lot more power to – and, okay, so the main way is the government, but it can be done in more democratic ways through mm. citizens' assemblies and other methods like that. But yeah. essentially somebody who's acting in the public interest uh, and the first step would clearly be the government. So then the government can they can either raise spending or decrease taxes in order to effectively put money into the economy. But they could also do it more directly, for example, through a basic income or as climate change and the transition to a decarbonized society happens, we're going to need to, for example, close or shrink some industries. Mm. Right. Uh, so the coal industries are classic example in the uk the coal industry more or less shut in the 80s or decreased massively whatever and um and that caused very serious social problems for people in those areas because Mm. they didn't have anything else to go to and at the moment there are loads of regions that around the world that are reliant on the coal industry and it's essential that the coal industry closes in order for us to decarbonize society so we need to avoid the kind of things that happened into the coal mining regions in the UK, happening to loads of other places. And the sovereign money system can be used, if if a government has a sovereign money system and needs to close a coal mining industry, they can use some of the money, newly created money, to help with the transition. For example, by doing a a targeted basic income for that area or helping people transition to new jobs um, and so on and so forth. So it gives much more possibility, better tools for helping to transition society.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so you've mentioned one of the one of the main tools and technologies in your book. And so now is probably a good time to talk about your book, which is called Building Tomorrow, Averting Environmental Crisis with a New Economic System. And I have it right here because you kindly sent it to me and I've read it and it is absolutely fascinating and also well reviewed by other people who are also very active in the field. And so I'd love to ask you, I guess, briefly what moved you to write the book, although I imagine we might be able to, to make some pretty good guesses on that, but I'd love to hear it from you. And then um, I'd like to just ask you about just a quick summary, I guess, of, and that might be an impossible ask uh, because of, these are complex themes, of course, but the six organisational technologies that you write about that you believe can create a new economic system more suited to our current global situation. First, though, let's hear about what seeds of inspiration um, created the impetus for this project.
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, I started focusing, uh, kind of seriously focusing on this kind of general area in 2015. Uh, I'd got back from a couple of years in the Amazon and for, it's a very long story that I won't go into, but basically I was kind of looking for a new project new uh thing to do with my life and I um as you do uh, yeah (laughs) and I'd always been generally interested in and always kind of recognized that essentially the world could be much better than it is like we can make things much better than they are kind of thing um and of course I was increasingly worried about the situation in terms of the environmental crisis and so forth so I started looking into and reading around and learning about how I might be able to join in and have a positive impact. And at first it was um, in a quite general sense. So my kind of thinking started from the position that due to technological and social innovations over the last kind of 50 odd years, um, we have the opportunity to redesign society and make it much better and it's also an imperative because of the environmental crisis. And then I kind of honed in on the economy because it's a very important aspect of the system and it's something I knew a bit about in have view. And so I was reading a lot of books and articles to find out, well, what's the solution? And I read loads and there were loads of good, good books and they seem to generally cover the problems with the current system, which I knew about, and they filled me in on more details and what have you, and then general ideas about what a better system might be. And again, I had similar ideas, and they filled me in on a bit more of those ideas and what have you. Um, And most books were looking, in this kind of area, were looking at the same kind of general idea of a future system, right? But only in general terms. And then in terms of actually trying to get from here to there and what there would look like in specific terms, um, I just found it a bit sparse, to be honest. The main thing was that people would suggest government policies, but governments have pretty much proven that they're not interested in trying to change the system. They're not going to put those policies in place. Um, and then a lot of books would have kind of like a bit of a scattershot of Mondragon's good, Patagonia's good and so yeah. on and so forth. but it still left me with not really knowing what we could do to get from here to there. So I'd often find myself having read these books and articles with a frustratingly unanswered question, but what should we actually do? And so to cut a long story short, I wrote Building Tomorrow to answer that question. So then in terms of like, how did I do that? Um, so I was writing Building Tomorrow with the specific aim of trying to maximise its impact of accelerating our transition to a new economic system. And so I decided to kind of order it in terms of organisational technologies because those are kind of substantive things that show how we can transition specific areas of the system. Uh, in choosing which technologies to include, I needed technologies that met three criteria. First of all, they need to be practically and realistically possible to implement given our current circumstances. And part of this is that they can't just be government policies, for example. Well, the sovereign money system does need government to put it into action, but generally they they need to be put into action by people throughout society because, as I say, governments don't really want to do these kind of things, most of them, but there are millions of people who do recognise that we need a better system and do want to, you know, help put it into action. So the technologies that I describe can be put in, excuse me, can be put into action by people throughout society. And this doesn't mean all of them can be put into action by everyone, but there are things that can be done by people in businesses, by people in councils, by people in communities, and so on and so forth. And then the second criteria is that they need to be powerful enough to actually transform the system. And the way I kind of see this is they kind of Go to the source. The technical way of saying this is that they approach leverage points um, in the system, following the uh, systems thinker Donella Meadows' description of how you can change systems. Yeah. So, to give an example of this, one of the technologies that I write about is um, the Future Guardian model of governance, which was developed uh, and is being pioneered by River Simple, accompanying Wales. And uh, this is for businesses, it's, uh, it redefines. How businesses run, or, and the kind of purpose of the business, and so there are loads of there are loads of issues with the way businesses are at the moment, and there are loads of individual policies as to how they might change. For example, going net zero is an important, you know, a, a policy that's very much in vogue yeah. uh, for businesses at the moment, yeah. and um, loads of businesses are, are trying to go net zero, but because they're generally also profit-maximizing businesses. They're trying to go net, go net zero and maximize their profits. So they're cutting corners, they're using offsets a lot, they're still having negative environment, environmental impacts in other ways, they're still treating their uh, supply chains and employees badly and so on and so forth. So that's just one policy, but it's still fighting against this imperative of profit maximization. Whereas the what the Future Guardian model does is it takes away the imperative for profit maximization. So it changes why a company exists what it's run on behalf of from being run on behalf of the shareholders which results in shareholder value maximization mm-hmm. to um, being run on behalf of all of the stakeholders which it counts in six groups so the one is the investors but then also the employees the customers the commercial partners the community and the environment and uh, I can go into it more detail later but basically it's they've changed their articles of association and got this whole structure of custodians and stewards to ensure this happens. So what it means is profit is still part of an important aspect of the company. Like it still does look for profit, but profit is no more important to it than its effect on the environment and its effect on communities and its effect on its employees and so on and so forth. So this means that a future guardian company really genuinely wants to not cause climate change so it doesn't it wants to be real zero really rather than net zero (laughs) Um, but it also wants to have a good effect on its employees and on its supply chains and on so you know all of its effects it wants to be positive so it's kind of upstream of all of those other issues and um enables all of these other policies to be put into place properly uh so yeah so the first thing it needs to be practically and realistically possible And the second, powerful enough to transform the system. And then the third criteria is that between them, they create a holistic new system. Mm -hmm. So there's no point in just changing one area, like just changing to the future guardian model or a sovereign money system or whatever, if all of the rest of the economy is still the capitalist system because it's always going to be pushing against it and it's not going to have enough of an effect. So to, um, to do this, to make sure they create a holistic vision of a new system um i've got between the six technologies they cover the main areas of the system so the first two are about the frameworks that guide our thoughts and actions uh the second two are about our businesses and organizations and the last two are about our monetary and financial systems and then i've ordered the book in that order in order to help build up a picture of this new system
0: Yeah, it's very clearly mapped out and thought through. And one of the things I think that's curious in terms of themes that underpins some of the technologies or practices that you outline in the book, and you write about this quite early on in the book, but it really captivated me, was that we need to move away from expansionism towards harmonisation. And I was really struck by the way of framing that. Can you maybe speak a little to to that, like what you mean when you write that?
1: Yeah, sure. So... um Yeah, this was in the introduction and explaining the kind of overall change in trajectory. Mm. And so expansionism in one sense of this, a major sense of this is economic growth, but it's also something that's been going on a bit longer than that. So, uh, or insofar as it's not just the capitalist economic growth system, like before that there was, the empires were all about expanding. And uh, I suppose relating it to the planetary scale species thing the at least the latest period of expansion has been expanding into being a planetary scale species yeah but a corollary of that is that we've had we've been expanding our environmental impact mm-hmm. uh negative environmental impact obviously um and now that has got to a stage that's um you know it's causing very serious problems and it could actually destroy this destroy you like the system and cause massive problems kind of thing um and so i guess i basically picked the kind of phrase harmonization and an economy of harmonization Mm. to describe getting into the kind of system well again to relate it to the planetary scale species thing we need to get into a situation where we can carry on for for an indefinite amount of time um and So in order to do that, we need to be in harmony with things. We need to not be causing problems for the natural world. We need to be in harmony with it. We need to not be having wars with increasingly dangerous weapons. Uh, So we need to be in harmony with each other. So one of the things that I don't really go into in my book, but general ideas is part of the way the current system is structured is like, always encourages people to think that to aim to become more rich right yes, to aim yeah. for more to want to be rich to want to be that multi-millionaire right but it's also kind of designed in such a way or the reality of the world is that only a few people can actually get there right so the whole system is designed for there to be only a few winners mm. and other people to hopefully do all right but be aiming to be one of those winners (laughs) and therefore be frustrated with the fact that they're only doing all right. Whereas that's also causing problems and it's a part of the mechanism of expansion because having all of these people pushing towards having more pushes everything towards having more, right? So instead we want to be, like as I put it in the book, harmonise our aspirations with our opportunities. We want to have goals for everyone that... We can actually all achieve um, rather than this only some people win type situation.:
0: yeah, and I think one of the things sort you break it down really beautifully, which is about the um, the five characteristics of the economy of harmonization you name as systemic adaptability environmental responsibility, global solidarity, local sufficiency and material security. And so I wonder, do you already see green shoots of these qualities or characteristics being put intentionally into practice?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, In terms of, so for example, um, global solidarity, that is something that hasn't even been an idea for people apart from very kind of visionary people for until the last like i don't know 100 years or something right um and nowadays it's pretty normal you know there's like i suppose a lot of people don't necessarily see it as a kind of thing but you know there's the UN sustainable development goals for example are goals for the whole of humanity and there's just loads and loads of people who recognize that we're all people and we should all have solidarity, essentially. And then it is being, for example, the donut, the um, first technology in the book, that um, uh, has the, the social foundation and uh, ecological bounds. So the, the donut, uh, it can be summarised as having a new goal instead of economic growth of uh, meeting the needs of all within the means of the living planet as the aim so that's everyone having the uh basics of enough food social networks education etc etc and collectively us not going over the ecological bounds of like i said before climate change biodiversity etc and um so that is an inherently that has global solidarity at its core, right? Because it's saying we should all be doing this. And the guys at, there's an organization founded by or co founded by Kate Rayworth called Donor Economics Action Lab. And they're working uh, with people, uh, I think around the world more or less, to help put this into action. And it includes specifically finding ways of having solidarity across uh kind of through the world you know and linking mm. people and communities with ways that they can have positive effects more broadly as well kind of thing um and actually uh just a week ago uh, I'm in touch with someone in South Africa and uh he said that um in a city near Cape Town they're putting the donut into interaction there as well so Amazing. It's definitely <laughs> spreading around the world.
0: <laughs> it really is. And it's funny you mentioned um, Donut Economics Action Lab. I interviewed someone recently from there was wonderful, Erin Zahon, who talked about his experience in, in kind of taking a different route to what was previously a corporate career. So I think one of the things also is, is recognising that there needs to be a shift in our understanding of the impact we're having of our inherent connectedness and making these things a bit more tangible and one of the places where I think this kind of comes up quite a lot, or it can come up quite a lot, is in the realm of regenerative businesses, regenerative organisations, regenerative. I mean, it kind of gets added to pretty much any industry from farming to um, economics, I guess. And so maybe that's something else I'd like to ask about now Is is in the book, you reference regenerative organisations. And because different folks have different ideas about what that word means. I'd love to hear what your take on regenerative means within the frame of organisations and how such organisations can affect positive change in the world. Obviously, you know, thinking about the the donut and meeting the needs of people within ecological bounds.
1: Yeah, sure. So actually, I um, kind of came up with the name for that of my chapter and like the way of grouping these organisational structures before... Or at least before I realised, regenerative was kind of becoming such a popular word. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think which is a good I'd, thing. Well, I mean, yeah, that's. Popular, well, isn't? <laughs> yeah, but I also feel like if I'd uh, if I was renaming the the chapter now, I would probably actually call it uh, Cosmolocal yeah. organisations. Ah, interesting. Which, uh, because regenerative, yeah, is mainly kind of nature regenerative. Uh-huh. I get the impression is the way it's generally understood at the moment, um, and I'm talking about economically regenerative mainly. Although these organisational structures, they're kind of. Uh, decentralized regeneration so they can be applied to um, nature-based organizations as well but they're not specifically about that so
0: so cosmolocal because indra adnan also talks about cosmolocal quite a bit and it's a fascinating term what do you mean when you say cosmolocal
1: yeah so i actually think that cosmolocalism is potentially or oh, a, a preferable replacement for capitalist capitalism in terms of the kind of de- development dynamic uh so Cosmo Local means um well the kind of one of the mottos of it as it were is um design global manufacture local. So the idea is that we do things locally, uh you know, there are local factories, etc., and local material flows, but those local factories material flow are uh, the people doing the material flows, etc., are connected through global networks to share information and have collaborative development. Mm-hmm. So one of the organisations that's in the regenerative organisations chapter, so I know a bit about, and um, is a good example of this, is Fab Labs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say I know a bit about, it's one that I specifically picked as being one of the best ones. Um, <laughs> and um, they're, they're like maker spaces. So basically they've got a, They started in MIT, and they've got a kind of ideal fab lab. The idea is that using a in a fab lab, you can make almost anything on a non-commercial basis. You can just go along and use their machines and make things. And they have a uh, they're connected through a network. There's thousands of them around the world. So part of the idea is that you can, um, whenever you make anything in a fab lab, you upload the designs onto the fab cloud, so that then anyone else in any other fab lab can instantly download the design and wow. make the same thing That's so um, cool. yeah isn't it yeah and they've got loads of aspects that help this kind of move forwards and one of the things is that individual fab labs don't need to have exactly the equipment kind of recommended by the ideal fab lab the what they should be aiming for is to have the ability to produce anything that any other fab lab can do. So have the same kind of outputs, Mm. but using whatever local machinery, whatever's appropriate to their financial situation and so on and so forth. So this allows the individual labs to develop in their own way while sharing their knowledge of their development. And they also share information about what uh, machines they're using and all that kind of thing um, with the rest of the network, which enables a kind of collaborative development right mm-hmm. so that's the way in which it can be if it's applied m- more widely and to commercial organizations more then it can the it can be a swap essentially a replacement for the current capitalist dynamic of kind of individual companies trying to get as big as they can and hoard and grow their own capital and like kind of hoard information and all of that and swapping this to a collaborative dynamic where everything's shared among, and as the networks grow, then there are more people putting their resources into improving things. Uh, So, yeah, I think it can actually replace that capitalist dynamic.
0: That's extraordinary and and a very fundamentally different place from which to start because you're starting from a position of wanting to share and to collaborate and to kind of support the whole network, whether it's locally or far afield with the ideas that you're generating.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Mm. So then thinking about the biggest challenges that you see at the moment and on the horizon, what are the things that you're most focused on or concerned about?
1: So I think the most important immediate shift, I mean, I think basically we need to build a new system and mm-hmm. I like try and make the transition from the old system to the new one as smooth as possible. Um but I don't have much faith that the you know the massive multinational companies and big like g seven governments and all those kind of people are going to actually try to do that change themselves, at least not in the near future. Mm. So what I think the most important kind of immediate shift, and then there's kind of building waves as it were, is for um people to move. Like the kind of climate action zeitgeist at the moment, especially, to move from um, wanting and trying to get governments to do more to and do enough kind of thing to realizing they're not going to do enough, but we can do it ourselves and just get into action doing things in communities. I think a good way of looking at this is thinking about your sphere of influence. So what are all the ways in which you can have influence in your job, through your money, through organising transitional campaigns um, and so on and so forth. And then doing as much as you can and by talking to people and getting other people to do it and essentially like mobilising. And so, yeah, I hope that kind of if you look at this in the kind of waves of action mm-hmm. since about 2018, there's been a massive wave of climate action in Safiras. as you know, the protest movements, the um, Fridays for Future and Greta Thunberg's things and Extinction Rebellion and loads and loads of movements all around the Western world kind of thing. Um, but they're focused on trying to get governments to change generally. Yeah. And But they have, you know, millions and millions of people are involved in them. Um, so I hope that now the next wave, and there are signs that this is beginning to happen, um, is for people to just go about, doing decarbonisation themselves as i say through the spheres of influence and what have you Um, and at the same time the kind of vanguard people beginning to build the new systems so economic Mm -hmm. system but also you know kind of agricultural and ecological systems through bioregionalism and so on and so forth and kind of getting these things in place and then i mean i basically think that climate change is going to get really quite hairy in the 2030s probably um which i've kind of base that date on um, the levels of, of like the the water in the pa- Lake Powell and Lake Mead, which are running out. So there's, they're likely to cause like very big problems in America, which is the heart of the current system in the 2030s. Oh. Um, so, and then there's obviously loads and loads of other issues. And I'm guessing that the 2030s is going to be when they're hitting really quite hard. So at that point, we need to have the new systems all ready to go and to scale very rapidly. And this is something else that the Cosmo local organizations, that network organization is really good for because, because it's like this network thing where you're like, well, this is what you can do in your area. And then as soon as people want to, they can just do it. So Mm. if we get to like the, I don't know, 2035 or whatever, and, and, masses of people the the current systems are kind of breaking and masses of people are like oh my god what do we do we need to be in a position where we say this is what we do we're already doing it you just have to do the same thing as well and then it can spread really rapidly through this kind of network effect um so yeah that's kind of how i imagine things going in a positive way and i think yeah mobilizing everyone to just do everything they can and obviously try and keep getting governments to stop being bad essentially and <laughs> like one of the big companies to stop being bad. Mm. But also to just do the good things ourselves, the much more positive things ourselves.
0: So in your book, there are clearly examples and roadmaps for businesses who want to become future guardians, who want to adopt the future guardian model for businesses and organizations that want to work within the confines and possibilities of the donut model. So there's lots of different ways that businesses can can adapt that financial systems can change, for someone like me or someone listening, what would you say if there were one or two practical steps that people could get involved in to move towards a more resilient way of living, what might you advise them?
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, uh, I've kind of got, like in the book, there are loads and loads of examples of what people can do to put these ideas into action and help build the new system Mm -hmm. um so i've got a kind of list of things that people in different areas can do that are all just examples i've taken from my book so um for people who are working in a company uh then the ultimate goal is to try to move the company towards the future guardian model which is actually we haven't really gone into very much so far but it's a really good strong model for um stakeholder-based business with yeah. a purpose and uh but it is that's quite a um you know vanguard kind of thing to do like really right at the front kind of thing to do so there are only a few companies that that for which that's realistically possible in the short term i actually describe a strategy for transitioning to ultimately a future guardian economy and making it much more widespread which relies on a big Established company. I use the example of Patagonia, but there are loads of other examples. Uh, becoming a future guardian and therefore making the model famous, mm-hmm. and then a network organisation helping to spread it. So, if you're in a company like Patagonia or you know any other very progressive company, then actively trying to move it towards the future guardian model, or just telling the decision makers who want to improve the situation about the future guardian model, is a very important thing to do. But Obviously, loads and loads of people aren't in those kind of companies. So for those kind of people, it might be a more realistic aim might be to become a B Corp, which is essentially a lower level. It's a certification for companies that treat their stakeholders well, but it's not quite as, as powerful as the future guardian model. And there are already 6,000 B Corps. There's an organization, B Labs, that is spreading this model. There's 6,000 around the world. So it's a very realistic aim. And then another thing is to, important thing is to spread knowledge about what Deal, in fact, Erin Sahan calls the deep design of business. So that's basically the structural issues that force businesses to be profit maximizing and to cause problems. So I think they have five areas. The purpose, governance, finance, ownership and networks are the five areas they discuss and Mm. they've got loads of information on that. And basically spreading knowledge of that is a good idea. Another kind of more small scale thing that can have a big, big positive effect is challenging greenwashing. Loads of companies claim they want to do loads of positive things, but do it in a not very good way or like, you know, greenwash basically, right? So, suggest they walk the walk, find specific ways in which they can, you know, more positive ways of doing things. And if the pushback from that is no, because it doesn't make the company enough money, you know, we've got to increase profits, margins, et cetera, et cetera, then you can use that as an introduction to the deep design of business and explain, well, look, if you change to the future guardian model, for example, then you don't have to profit maximize. So you're allowed to do these kind of things that we all know we need to do. Um, so those are some ideas for, and then also if you're in a um, really a company that doesn't want to do positive things, then consider changing job.
0: And <laughs> yes. obviously,
1: yeah, it obviously yeah, it's an important thing because we need as much resources like we've got a lot of intelligence, time, resources, mm-hmm. etc. Um, humanity as a whole does, and most of it's being put into like profit maximisation and and problematic things. Uh, so we need as much of that as possible to be put into positive things so do think about changing your job if you're doing something that's not very positive and obviously that might include strategizing like you can't necessarily just quit tomorrow because you've got responsibilities family what have you but working out your route um and then for people in uh local government um and community organizations an important thing is to understand this is another thing that's one of the technologies in my book that we haven't actually discussed but (laughs) complementary currencies are very important and um so understand when, how, and why to use them, which you can do by reading my book. And um, uh, and then essentially just have them in your toolbox and uh, know when to use them and use them when appropriate. Um, and another thing for people in local government to do is to make links with local organisations like the Transition Network, the Donut Economics Action Lab and so on, and work out how to help them and how to actually do them yourself, like, Just a couple of weeks ago, Deal released a tool to help local governments um, engage with the donor and begin using it within their local government setting. So start doing those kind of things. There are loads and loads more things, but just to cut home down a bit, I think possibly one of the most important things is to talk about it and mobilise people. Understand the kind of new system we're aiming for and the things we need to do to get there and work out what you can do, but also think about, what your friends can do, your family can do, your community can do, can do. enthuse them, talk about the positive aspects, talk about the both specific and general possibilities, of what they might be able to do and mobilise them. Because the most important thing is that we all just get to with trying to put this into action and um, actually do it. So mobilise.
0: Get some motivation in there. Let's do it. Yeah. So, so to end on this note, before I ask where people can find more about your work. I'd like to ask you just briefly, how do you orient yourself towards hope, towards keeping going when things get tough for you?
1: Right. So um, basically because I see that we can have a much better world and better society and it's really hard to do, but we can do it. And there are people who've been pushing for much longer than I have and gone through much more in order to try to get there but there are also loads of positive things that are happening and I can see that we can get there I know that I have faith in humanity to be honest like I know that most people want to get there we just need to like organize mobilize work out be strategic and focused and we can actually do it so yeah I guess I've just got faith that we can I
0: love that, <laughs> and that faith in humanity it's very refreshing so, Paddy, alongside your wonderful book, Building Tomorrow, where can people learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, so, um, so yeah, my book is called Building Tomorrow, Averting Environmental Crisis with a New Economic System. And that's my first publication. But I'm currently uh, planning, I've got, like, in my head quite well planned, yeah. a series mm-hmm. of essays that I'm going to write over the next few months and publish. So to get um, an update when I publish something... Uh, you can sign up to my substack which is paddylafluphy.substack.com um and it, maybe you can write that in sh- the show notes cuz laflufy is a bit weirdly spelt. but um <laughs> and um and yeah i'll just post on there when i have something published so when i do a podcast or i publish a um an article or if there's a big review of building tomorrow or something like that And that's probably the best way of finding it. And then on Twitter, follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Um, And yeah, it's Paddy Lafluffy. I'm the only person with my name, so I'm quite easy to find.
0: (laughs) And Lafluffy, just for for reference, is spelt L-E and then separately. F-L-U-F-Y.
1: There you go, exactly. There we go.
0: (laughs) Well, Paddy, it's been such a whistle-stop tour. And honestly, I I recommend if you're listening to this thinking, okay, we only touched on some of the principles, some of the frameworks, please do dive into the book because it is interesting. There's examples, there are case studies and uh, lots of resources to dive into. So it's a valuable handbook for systemic change. Paddy, thank you so much for coming to talk to me.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Well, folks, that's a wrap. I've really loved weaving the season together, and I hope you found our exploration into how we might reimagine humanity's role and narrative at this unusual moment as touching and thought-provoking as I have. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording and producing each episode. We'll be taking a break over the summer and the Hive podcast will be back in the autumn with another set of stimulating conversations for you to dive into. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalienahide.com. Explore additional books and resources at natalienahide.com forward slash resources. And you can follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalienahide. As always, my heartfelt thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next season.